0: We pick up our journey through 2 Chronicles with chapter 26. I'm going to cover chapters 26 through 32. We'll be in the kingdom of Judah and cover the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. In chapter 26, Uzziah, son of Amaziah, is crowned king. He's 16 years old he's going to continue the pattern of starting well, but not being able to be consistent and faithful long term. It's easy to start well. It's much harder to maintain that consistency and faithfulness. In verses 1 through 15, we see him starting well. And in verses 16 through 21, we see how things go badly. The chronicler here presents the idea That the divine blessings experienced because of faithfulness can actually be the things that lead to the apostasy that then brings judgment. If our character is not up to where it should be, if we don't keep a connection to God, then the actual blessings that God gives us can cause us to stumble. Um, We need that connection to God and faithful godly character in order to be long-term faithful, especially in leadership positions. Uzziah decides that he's going to act as priest. This is beyond his role. He's going to worship as he wants instead of the way it has been prescribed. He's confronted by this and the consequence is that he develops leprosy. The leprosy spreads very quickly and he will remain leprous until he passes away. What that means is because of the leprosy, he will never again be able to go into the temple. So the result of not worshiping as prescribed means that he will never again have the opportunity to worship as prescribed. His son will have to rule in his place because of the leprosy, even though he will remain king, at least in name, for 52 years. In chapter 27, Jotham, Uzziah's son, succeeds him. For um, He's 25 years old when he is crowned, and he's going to reign for 16 years. Verse 8 echoes verse 1. Jotham is a bright spot in history. He's faithful, but all of the people are not. So the blessings don't corrupt him, but he doesn't focus on drawing all of the people closer to God, or at least he was not successful in drawing all the people to God. In chapter 28, we see Ahaz succeeding his father, and this dashes away any hope that Jotham may have raised. Ahaz is going to be the high point of wickedness and evil. He's 23 years old when he becomes king, and he's going to reign for 16 years. He is wicked in every way, wicked in all the crucial areas, religiously, politically, and militarily. It even tells us that he causes his sons to pass through the fire. This means he engaged in human sacrifice. He sacrifices his children, and that's usually to the god Moloch. Um, one of the Canaanite gods. We also have a story here where some Israelite warriors attack. This is not portrayed as an actual organized civil war battle, um, but as um, maybe a rebellion, just um, something that a few decide to do. But they attack and they win. They take 200,000 captive to be their slaves. But the prophet Oded is going to confront them about this. He meets them on the road. And then we have other leaders concurring with what the prophet Oded says. Now, what I wonder is would those other leaders have stood up and said something if Oded had not, or would they have let this happen? And do they agree with Oded? Like, did they meet with Oded and send him to confront them, or do they only get on board later. Sometimes people do the right thing in the end, but they have to have someone to stand up first. My goal would always be to be the person who's willing to stand up first and not have to have others others do it and make it just become one of the gang. Um, so those the other leaders who do finally stand up, they show compassion. They take those 200 people back, at least back into their territory, back to the border. So a great evil is um, prevented. Ahaz is now going to ask Assyria for help, but Assyria is going to refuse. Uh, they're getting hit right now from from several sides, from the Edomites, from the Philistines. In verse 19, we see that King Ahaz behaves without restraint This is especially, he does it in all areas, but especially sexually. Now Assyria is going to join the others who are attacking them. So they've been asked for help, but instead of being helped, they're going to be part of the oppression. They see an opportunity. Now that they know you're weak, here they come. Ahaz interprets these defeats not as the judgment of God, which leads him to repentance, Instead, he sees it as the weakness and the inability of the Israelite God, and this will cause him to really turn away from Israel's God and turn to other gods. He very much embraces pagan practices, and we see him pass away at the end of chapter 28. As we move into chapter 29, we move into a new portion. Chapters 29 through 32 are going to share the reign of Hezekiah. This is a reign of righteousness, and this is a lot of space dedicated to a single reign. But because it's a bright spot, the Chronicler really wants to shine a spotlight on it. Hezekiah is 25 years old. When he becomes king, he's going to reign for 29 years. It's a pretty good lengthy reign. That's almost three decades. In the first year and the very first month, he cleanses the temple. So he sets about religious reforms immediately. It takes him 16 days, more than two weeks, to clean out the temple and repair what has been destroyed. He's going to reinstitute temple worship, though it's going to happen with less drama, less wealth, and less ceremony than it has happened in the past. It will be really difficult to ever come back to what it was under Solomon's reign. He rededicates the temple reinstitutes the sacrificial system. And you're going to see in this portion of scripture, the number seven coming several times. Seven is the number of perfection or completion. We see Hezekiah making atonement for all of Israel, not just Judah, but all of them. So the way it's supposed to be when they are united. So he's going to witness to unity even though it doesn't currently exist, even though they're still in their brokenness. In chapter 30, we see that Hezekiah invites religious unity among the people, even if political unity cannot be accomplished at this time. So he invites the Israelites to come back into Jerusalem and to worship with them, to worship as they have been told to do. However, he's met mostly with laughter. There are a few who respond, but it's not widely accepted. They're going to um, observe the Passover again, the festivals of Passover and unleavened bread. By the time of Jesus, these two festivals have become rolled into one. Passover was actually the meal, which remembered the Passover before they left Egypt. Then they ate unleavened bread for seven days after that which reminded them of the fact that they had to flee very quickly. The bread didn't have time to rise and that they had to eat it until manna became, became their sustenance in the wilderness. So it's an eight-day observance that all just gets called Passover later. They're not all sanctified to observe the Passover properly. They have not prepared as they are supposed to. And so the king asked God to forgive them. Forgive them for not getting it perfect and, but to accept that their desire was to please God. They then observe the Passover twice as long as usual. They do it for 14 days instead of seven. And there's a joy here that we sense and a joy among the people that echoes back to the times of David and Solomon. In chapter 31, Hezekiah destroys the pagan shrines He reinstitutes the sacrificial tithing system, which supports the priests and supports the temple. The king initiates it, and then the people follow him. So he inspires rather than compels their obedience. This is always the most effective way. It's always easier to lead than it is to drive or pull people in the right direction. And they discover that when they tithe, there's more than enough. They are blessed economically by this generosity. And many, many people still find that to be the case when they step out and give sacrificially, particularly when they determine to step up to a tithe to giving 10%. They discover that the 90% goes further than they expected it to and often further than it went before. In chapter 32, if this parallels with Second Kings chapters 18 through 20, those chapters are condensed here in this one chapter. Sennacherib of Assyria is going to attack. Hezekiah is going to remain faithful. He doesn't become like the Assyrians. He doesn't seek outside military help. He responds to the Assyrian propaganda with prayer and by consulting with the prophet Isaiah in verse 20. We're going to see in the book of Isaiah that this time of attack by Sennacherib becomes a significant event in the life of Isaiah and his prophetic ministry. An angel of the Lord comes and cuts off the opposing army. We aren't told exactly how. We're left to fill in some of the blanks. Second Kings 1935 says that 185,000 of the Assyrian soldiers die. The Greek historian Herodotus. Says that Sennacherib's forces were infested with rats and that the rats chewed up their arrows and chewed up the straps of their armor. This would have been one of the reasons that they wouldn't have been able to fight. This story may have come either from an Egyptian source or from a story that has been attributed to this from Egypt, because rats were much more common in Egypt than in um, this particular area, but it's not unheard of. Others say that it was a disease that killed the 185,000. It, if it was rat a rat infestation that destroyed their weapons, then they simply flee. There were 185,000 encamped there who flee, but Second Kings says those 185,000 die, So some sources say it was disease that swept through. They suggest in particular that it could have been bacillary dysentery, which has a three-day incubation period. So about the amount of time that they would have been encamped here. So it's just long enough to get to them to develop and devastate their forces. Both stories could be true. If there were rats or mice which infest the camp and chew up their weaponry, Those rats could have also contaminated the food and brought disease. The devastating disease once introduced would have spread through the camp. They would have spread it to one another, particularly if the rats are carrying disease and are from an area that the Assyrians aren't regularly in. They have a susceptibility to it. So Hezekiah himself gets sick. This could have happened when he goes to the camp to survey the devastation, to see how they've abandoned the camp. He may have contracted the dysentery there and suffers from it. He prays to God to heal him, um, and God does answer his prayer, but he remains proud. We're not told exactly how or how this is known, but he doesn't respond appropriately in the way God wants. Um, The disease doesn't kill him, and he's not the only one who contracts it either, um, so I, I think the whole party that went to look at the camp all contract this disease, but it's considered a judgment of God on something that has gone wrong. Second Kings 20 says um, that the sign was the retreating sundial, and that pride was his only response to this. Hezekiah ultimately does humble himself, Um, And then we have a review of his reign before he dies as chapter 32 closes.